Hello. I hope you're having a great day, a great week. Every week I get on here and I say something like, thank you for tuning into Balanced Black Girl, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm really trying not to repeat myself as much because I realize I do tend to say the same things over and over. As humans, we all say the same things over and over, but when you have a podcast and when your words are recorded and shared and amplified, it's even more noticeable when you say the same things over and over. <laughs> so I'm working on it. I'm, I'm trying to incorporate new vocabulary into my life and maybe think of a new greeting and, you know, new ways of being. But I don't know if that will be today. So if you're new here, a welcome to Balanced Black Girl. <laughs> and if you're returning, a welcome back to Balanced Black Girl. I started this podcast almost four years ago because frankly, I am a wellness nerd. I love learning about well-being and the different things that impact our well-being, learning about science, learning about how our bodies work. And I wanted to learn those things from other black women because though I've loved listening to podcasts for a decade now, a lot of the older wellness podcasts that I was listening to that were talking about certain topics just did not share enough perspectives from Black women experts. And many episodes later, here we are. Today's episode truly captures the essence of why I started Balance Black Girl to begin with. It is an OG wellness student Balance Black Girl episode, my favorite kind of episode. <laughs> and today we're talking about gut health. And I know that may not sound like the sexiest topic in the world, but it's actually so incredibly important. And that is because your gut health is truly the gateway to the rest of your body. A healthy digestive system is crucial for well-being because there isn't a single part of your body that isn't impacted by your gut health. Gut health can influence your immune system, heart health, brain health, oral health, blood sugars, sleep patterns, your mood, and so much more. And the gut is incredibly complex, but it isn't something that many of us are taught about or talk about in daily conversation. And a lot of the content out there that centers around health and well-being either ignores it completely or talks about it in a really complex way that for most of us who aren't necessarily talking about the complex digestive system all day, we may not necessarily understand. I know I don't because I'm still learning about a lot of this stuff. So I wanted to bring a conversation to the podcast that really helps us begin to understand this complex system in our body. In 2020 and in 2021, I experienced some issues with my own gut health because I had a few rounds of antibiotics for unrelated reasons, and it really impacted so many things in my body, but especially around my digestion. And it really inspired me to start learning more about my microbiome. Like, why did that happen? Why did it happen after I you know, took those antibiotics in a short period of time? How are these things all connected? Was the issues that I was experiencing with my oral health related to my gut health. At the time, I didn't know if that was the case, but over time, I've learned that yes, a lot of those things are really connected. And I've learned a lot about why we should be mindful of gut health when it comes to healing. So today's episode is kind of a gut health 101 so that we can take a look at this complex system and start understanding it just a little bit better. I want to say today's conversation is not medical advice by any means. And with something as complex as digestion and as the gut, there can be a lot going on there. And so this is definitely not meant to be medical advice if anyone is experiencing issues with their gut or, you know, treatment if someone does have an ailment related to gut health. It's really meant to be an overview so that we can start understanding how this element of our body works better. So please talk to your doctor before making any dietary or supplemental changes. Our guest today is Dr. Asia Muhammad. Dr. Asia values the power of lifestyle modifications to achieve optimal health. She uses evidence-based, science-based medicine to provide individualized attention to those in her practice. As a naturopathic doctor, she utilizes nutrition, exercise, supplementation, botanical medicine, and mind-body therapies. She has a special interest in gastroenterology, mind-body medicine, and stress management, as increasing research demonstrates the role of stress in disease. She has received additional training in gastroenterology and mind-body therapies, including hypnosis, guided imagery, biofeedback, autogenic training, and progressive muscle relaxation. 
This episode is probably one that you will want to listen to a few times because like I said, it's really a gut health 101. We talk about the different microbiomes in our body. We talk about good bacteria versus bad bacteria, daily practices many people can do to be more mindful of their gut health, how our gut health can impact our mental health, how liver health and the body's ability to detox is related to all of this and so much more. Dr. Asia has a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I'm so honored to have her on the show today. So let's get into today's interview. Dr. Asia, welcome to Balance Flat Girl. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited about this podcast. I'm super excited to be here. I love your content, love the work that you do. So getting to have you on the podcast is such an honor. Yay. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk crap today. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Absolutely. So the first thing I would love to kick things off by learning a little bit more about you. You know, while we're having this conversation, it's spring, summer is quickly approaching. What is your favorite produce item that's currently in season? Like, what do you love to eat this time of year? I love like dandelion greens. Mm -hmm. Because you can't find them any other time of year, obviously. And so I think it's really wonderful when I go to the store and I can just buy a bunch of dandelions and saute them. So that's my jam, like in the spring, summertime. Love it. And you like to saute them, you said? Oh, yeah. I saute them just like regular like spinach with like some onion, garlic and like spices. And then I'll usually eat them with something else. But I just love how bitter they are. Mm -hmm. So that's why I really enjoy them. And like arugula is a bitter green, but I feel like dandelion is one of the most bitter greens. So love that. I'll have to try that because normally when I have dandelion, I'll have it like in teas or different drinks, Mm -hmm. but it's not something I've eaten. Oh yeah. It's extremely bitter. My best friend loves it and she compares it to broccoli rob, which I've never actually had. So you have to try that. Okay. Yeah. I'll try it out and I'll let you know what I think of it. Okay. (laughs) So I'm excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about gut health. Right now on the podcast, we're focused on different modalities of healing. And Mm -hmm. when I think about understanding what's happening with our bodies, with our digestion, healing our gut can be a really big gateway to healing the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, So first, I would love to hear what made you interested in naturopathic medicine and what brought you to this field of study? Yeah, you know, I um, started out in Tennessee undergrad there and I was a like science major. And so I knew I wanted to be in the healthcare world. I just didn't know in what capacity. And my mom growing up would always prime us in the way that parents prime their kids. And she's like, Oh, you make a great heart surgeon, which I don't even know how she gleaned that, you know, it's like, <laughs> what does she, what does she see? And so I just think it's what she wanted. Right. And so I knew I would be in medicine and I love the human body. So I went to school with this idea that I would probably be some type of surgeon or working in cardiovascular medicine. And I remember, was it my sophomore year of undergrad or maybe my early junior year, I was like shadowing all these doctors prepping for MCAT. And I just remember thinking like, this cannot be what medicine is. Because I grew up in a household where we did not take medications. That wasn't the norm for me. And so I grew up in a household where if something was happening, my mom had a cabinet full of teas or a cabinet full of herbs. And I didn't have my first ibuprofen until I was like 22. Wow. Yeah. And so I can count on one hand how many times I've actually taken medications previous to like having that ibuprofen and being a kid. And so I just didn't grow up with that mindset of something's wrong, take a pill, unless it was something very serious. And so when I went to school, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just be like, do be a doctor, but practice more holistic medicine. And then I went to school and in Tennessee, you don't see any naturopathic doctors. You pretty much see them on the West Coast or East Coast or some Southern states, but it was rare. And I don't think there is one there now. A few years ago, it's hard to find that type of doctor. You see chiropractors there. So my the only thing I saw was MDs and DOs. So I went and shadowed a bunch. And I just remember thinking like, this is not how I want to practice. They were seeing like 60 patients a day, 40 patients a day. If it was a surgical procedure, roll one in, roll them out, roll the next one in. I just remember thinking like, there's no conversation. There's no real humanness to this. And so I was sick one semester in school. And my mom had this book by this woman. And it's just like a flip chart book she'd had our entire lives. I guess her way of figuring out what was wrong when there was an issue with one of her kids 
And it just lists out like conditions you may have. So it'll say headache, it'll say sinus, it'll say asthma, whatever. And every page has like a little section, like it could be this. These are some natural things you could do. Here's some even crystals, you know, that you can use or homeopathy or foot massage. And I just thought it was the coolest book. <laughs> and when I was sick this quarter in school, I was like flipping through to see what I could take. And I just remember thinking like, I would love to do what this person does. And so I looked at the book and it said like indie and I'm like, what is that? And so I Googled it. I literally had an epiphany and I say this all the time. Like it's the one time in my life where I felt like, like this is what I'm going to do. Like everything felt aligned. So I Googled the school and looked at their curriculum. I decided like, this is what I'm going to do. My mom was like, are you sure? Are you sure? They had no idea what naturopathic medicine is. And a lot of folks still don't. Went to the school and yeah, I've been just kind of rocking and rolling ever since. I did four years at the school and then I did a three-year residency after that focused in GI with two gastroenterologists. So that's kind of why I focus a lot on GI conditions. I'm just really familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a couple of things that I, I would love to like. Yeah. First, thank you so much for sharing your story. Uh -huh. uh, two, it just sounds like this path was definitely very aligned. Mm -hmm. You know, even you had that seed planted early of going into medicine, even though you didn't, you know, become a cardiologist. Right, still, right. Still being in medicine, seeing how your mom took that approach to more holistic health. Sounds like it really had a, a profound impact on you. I definitely know that it did. And I do think that had I been raised with a different mentality around health, I probably would have been conventional medicine. But a lot of conventional medicine now is branching towards functional medicine. So I think that, you know, I would have eventually ended up in this space either way. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. And can you explain to us kind of the difference between ND and MD or functional and uh, more mainstream medicine? So when you look at MD or allopathic medicine versus ND naturopathic medicine, so the premise is really based in how the patient is assessed and treated, right? And so when you look at allopathic medicine, it's a great system of medicine relative to acute disease, pathology, diagnoses, and so forth. But the treatment relies heavily on prescriptions, procedures, surgeries, and then with naturopathic medicine or functional medicine, which is kind of like this umbrella term, it essentially looks at the person as like a whole person, right? So you're not segmented out. So it's not like, oh, you have, I don't know, rheumatoid arthritis. You need to just focus your attention with a rheumatologist, right? It's like, oh, there's also probably some gut issue there. So let's look at the whole person. So there's more of a lens on the entire, all the organ systems as a whole. And then the treatment primarily relies on a huge part of treatment is prevention and also other tools, not just prescriptions, because in some states, NDs do have prescription rights, but it also relies on diet, on environment, on stressors, mind-body medicine. Acupuncture is a huge part of naturopathic medicine, botanicals, homeopathy, some physical manipulation. So it just kind of encompasses more modalities for healing a person. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at what's going on in the whole body instead of one specific set of symptoms. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So I would love to transition to talk a little bit more about gut health. You know, that's a term that I think has become a part of the broader vocabulary more so in recent years than before. Yeah. I know I at least see a ton of like gut health content on social media, TikTok specifically, every other TikTok. Really? About gut health. Yeah. And maybe uh -huh. that's just my algorithm because I'm uh -huh. a wellness nerd, but you know, five years ago, you just, you didn't see that. Yeah. You didn't see those conversations happening. But I would love to take a step back and understand what we mean when we say gut health. So what all comprises gut health mm -hmm. and why is gut health so important for all of us to understand? Yeah. So gut health comprises, or I'll say, I usually say the ruta to the tuta. So I'll say <laughs> starting from your mouth to your bottom end, like that is mm -hmm. the entirety of your gut. It's one long tube that's connected. It's just segmented in different ways relative to its function and also its form as well. Um, and so when you think about our gut, you know, the, the main purpose of our digestive system is to digest and assimilate nutrients from our food and to eliminate what we don't need or aka poop out our waste product. And the gut is so central to health and disease because we know that when people have chronic inflammation, chronic diseases, autoimmune diseases, there's always some 
of happening in the gut, right? So it's not the gut is the root of everything because there's a huge saying that's like the gut is the root cause of all disease. And I'm not sure if I agree with that completely, but I do think there is a lot of truth in there because when you look at chronic disease, you see a lot of gut issues, dysbiosis, where you have an imbalance in bacteria, like populations. And so you may have more of the problematic bacteria than you do the positive bacteria. And bacteria actually produce their own types of chemicals that can affect our gut, that can affect our entire system, that can kind of create these cycles of inflammation that continue inflammation in the body. And also they can affect our brain, our mood health. So the gut is actually linked to pretty much all of our organ systems. When you look at the literature around any type of chronic disease, you typically see some type of gut occurrence happening. And so I think that there's a lot of emphasis on our gut. And I think that there should be because, you know, when you look at the literature, they used to say we have more bacteria in our gut than we have body cells. And, you know, the new literature that's coming out is saying maybe we have just as many bacteria in our gut as we do body cells, but that it still speaks to the um, importance of our microbiome and intestinal health and overall health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can we define microbiome? Cause, and cause yeah. we have kind of multiple microbiomes Mm -hmm. going on, right? There's like the oral microbiome, Mm -hmm, the gut mm -hmm. microbiome. If you have a vagina, like the vaginal microbiome, what do those different things mean? So your microbiome is essentially a community of microbes, right? Mm -hmm. So they could include bacteria, parasite, virus, fungal components, yeast. And so it's essentially supposed to be a symbiotic relationship of all these different microbes that essentially function to keep us at our optimal state, we'll say. And so you have microbiomes all over. You have a microbiome in your lungs. You have microbiome pretty much in many of your organ systems, your skin, you know, like you said, your vaginal microbiome, your gut microbiome, oral microbiome. I mean, there's so many like new microbiomes being discovered. It's so interesting. (laughs) Like all the bacteria we have all over us and inside of us all the time. And are those microbiomes connected? Like if someone starts experiencing maybe an imbalance in the oral microbiome, could that impact the gut microbiome and other parts of the body? A hundred percent. Yes. The oral microbiome does impact the rest of the, the gut. The oral microbiome also impacts our cardiovascular system. And we have studies showing how when people have bacterial infections in their mouth, it actually can trigger bacterial infections of the cardiovascular system, which is a really serious consequence. And so you also see connections with the microbiome in the gut and the lungs. I was actually just writing a piece on the gut lung axis. And we know that the microbiome in the gut can actually affect the bacterial populations in the lung and the microbiome of the lung actually resembles the microbiome of the gut. When I say resemble, I mean like some of the bacterial families are the same in terms of what you predominantly see hanging out there. You see that repeated in our respiratory tree as well. Wow. This is yeah. amazing just to hear how complex Isn't that? the body is. Yeah. Yes. I know. I know. All these bacteria on us all the time, like inside of us, and we can't even see them. Like, I think it's just kind of the uniqueness and the beauty of being human and just being an organism in this world. Because so many other systems, apples have their own microbiome, you know, so many things have their own microbiome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And to that point, you know, it sounds like our microbiomes can kind of communicate with other microbiomes. Like we mm-hmm. eat that apple and we then yeah. kind of take on the microbiome of that apple. Am I reaching? Well, <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate per se, because, you know, we have a lot of mechanisms in the body to neutralize bacteria coming in, right? And so if you eat an apple that has bacteria on it, if you have sufficient stomach acid, typically you don't, you really don't pass those bacteria down. And then you have pancreatic enzymes, you have bile, which is from your liver that can also break apart or neutralize or kill bacteria in the gut and keep populations in control. So there's so many built in mechanisms to prevent, you know, an excessive amount of bacteria entering the body because bacteria are everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting like thought, though. I've never had anybody like ask that or talk about that. But that is really interesting. I'm just a nerd. Like yeah, I was just thinking like, questions. ah, that's, that's a really cool thought because like so many people eat like raw foods that haven't been cleaned off. Right. And mm-hmm. there's a different microbiome population um, between foods that are raw and foods that are not raw foods that haven't been like washed. I'll say in foods that have been washed. So I think that that's something that needs further thought. I think you might be on to something actually. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> uh-huh. Very interesting. <laughs> So one of the things that you also mentioned was just inflammatory responses and how that is related to 
gut health. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit more about what causes inflammation and some of the kind of consequences of inflammation in the body? Yeah. So inflammation is actually a normal and natural occurrence in the human body. It's just like everything else in life, there just needs to be balance, right? The issue is that we just live in such a world in the time now that there's more driving towards pro-inflammation than anti-inflammatory. So it's not really a balanced mechanism for many humans. And when you think about inflammation, there are many different factors that play into inflammation, many different cytokines or chemokines, which are basically these cell chemicals that stimulate processes that upregulate certain factors that contribute further to inflammation. So that sounded like a mouthful, but there are all (laughs) these like different interleukin-6 or your TNF or different NFKB, like there are different things you can peruse in the literature to deduce where inflammation is coming from. But when you look at the gut specifically, when you have a dysbiotic gut, like you have imbalances in certain bacterial families, and there's not a test or a well, there are tests, but there's not a symptom, I'll say sign or symptom to say, yes, you have dysbiosis. People will say, oh, I have skin issues, I must have dysbiosis. It could totally be gut related, but it could also be not related to the gut. But there's not a way to actually identify somebody that has a dysbiosis. And when you think about bacterial populations, we know that when you have certain types of bacteria in your gut, they can actually release certain chemicals from their cell walls that actually will can permeate into the gut lining and stimulate our immune system, which kind of hangs out right beneath our gut lining. So the immune system of the gut is multifold. It's in the tissue, but it's also underneath the tissue. And so when you have like these molecules called LPS, which you can read about, but LPS kind of gets out of the bacteria, goes into the lining, can stimulate the immune lining there. And that just kind of revs up this cycle of inflammation in the body. And we know that LPS is kind of like a light switch for inflammation. So we know if bacteria are a main source of that, and you have dysbiosis, and you have these types of gram-negative bacteria in your gut that can actually continue this cycle of inflammation. And I've seen people who have non-GI related issues, like they're not gassy, they're not bloated, they don't have diarrhea, they don't have constipation, but they have unexplained auto, undiagnosed autoimmune disease, meaning they go to the rheumatologist and they're like, yeah, something's happening, but we don't have a solid diagnosis for you. But yeah, your joint pain may be because of this autoimmune process we're, we're seeing. And we'll just work on gut protocols. I don't even do stuff for inflammation. I'll just do gut focused protocols. Wow. Just kind of goes to show how interconnected our our bodies are where those those, you know, symptoms right. may not even seem related, but yet making one tweak. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. That's exactly. Amazing. I think it's so powerful also when patients can see that and they see how their body is so connected. And I think we oftentimes segment our body and say, oh, if I have joint problems, I need to see a rheumatologist. Or if I have, you know, like headaches, I need to see a neurologist. And it could also be just something gut related. So I love to start off really, really slow and just layer things on to see kind of how the body responds, because the body is really intelligent. Um, and it's always trying to heal. Like that's kind of like something a built in resilient mechanism for us. I was just writing this paper on fractals, which are these kind of like patterns that repeat at different scales, right? So you can see fractals in like a leaf, you see a little line that branches off into another line that keeps branching, just like a tree trunk, they just keep branching. And it looked that the smaller parts look like the bigger parts. And so if you think about like our cardiovascular system, when you have like a artery that gets blocked, the body will literally form another pathway called angiogenesis to create a new vessel because it's continually trying to keep us going. Like we are always trying to be our optimal selves. And I think that that's evident in the gut as well. Like the gut cells that absorb nutrition, absorb our nutrients from our food, they're called like the villi, which are like these finger-like projections in the gut. But if you zoom in on each villi, there's another villi hanging out. There's like, there's just, it just kind of keeps repeating. And the purpose is to make so much space for absorption. So the body has no reason not to be its best self. It's kind of beautiful when you think about it in that capacity, but our bodies are always working with us, even if it doesn't seem like it. Uh, Our bodies are just amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. And I think it's understanding things like this that can also help us show our bodies a bit more grace. When we think about all the things our body is Mm -hmm. doing to keep us alive and to stay in balance, it is incredible. Yep. It it really is incredible. I wish there was like some class or lecture or something about how 
resilient our body is and how we are always seeking homeostasis. And I, I don't know, I just am obsessed with this kind of concept. So, so interesting. I would love to also talk a little bit more about immune function in the gut because that was something that you mentioned. Yeah. Something that I'm curious about, and it could be too early to tell. There may not necessarily be research about this, but I'm curious if there's a correlation between gut health and COVID outcomes. Like I would be curious to see maybe patients who who had COVID, people who were able to maybe recover quickly and not have long-term symptoms what did their gut health look like compared to people who had more severe outcomes? Have you seen any? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is research. There's actually a gastroenterologist that just presented a presentation on the difference in the microbiome between like more severe COVID mm-hmm. sufferers and less severe. And when I say severe, I mean like worse outcomes, right? Um, and so you do find more dysbiosis and more of those kind of funky pathogens or funky bacteria. I won't say pathogens, but funky bacteria hanging out in the gut and people with more severe COVID outcomes. So, you know, and it, and it speaks to, like I said, everything being connected, but also the capacity of immune function in the gut. And we know people say like, oh, most of your immune system is in your gut. But I think that's just kind of a saying that people throw out there. But it actually is true. A lot of your immune system is concentrated in your gut through your gut, which is kind of gut associated lymphoid tissue. You have like a lining of immune cells underneath your intestinal lining. So think of your intestinal tract as a tube around the tube, like insulation around the tube. There's like a few layers there. One is a mucus layer, which is the first layer. The second layer is your cell layer. And then underneath that cell layer, you have kind of all these immune cells. And it's really amazing how the body has built in all these mechanisms to pretty much protect us, right? Because it pretty much knows the world we live in, we're going to encounter things that are not beneficial to our organism. So it's kind of built in this security guard system along the entire gut to kind of check things like your tonsils and your mouth. It's like all these checkpoints to ensure that we are living our optimal lives. And so when you think about COVID, you do see different gut microbiome profiles and different amounts, uh, different types of bacteria in people with like uh, portending worse outcomes Mm -hmm. from COVID. Wow. Wow. The fact that Mm -hmm. immune cells make up an entire layer is so fascinating. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's incredible. It, it really is incredible. And that's that autoimmune picture. So when you have increased intestinal permeability, they call it leaky gut. What happens is like all of these like unwanted compounds, they're not actually getting into the system per se, but what they do is stimulate that immune cell layer kind of underneath the gut. And so you kind of have continual stimulation of your immune system and it should not be on 10 all of the time. It's kind of like a car, like our cars go from zero, but they have, they go up to maybe 160, right? But nobody ever drives at 160. We pretty much stay between like at the max 60, 70, 80. And so if you think about if you're constantly running your car on 160, I mean, it's going to burn out just because it's there does not mean you need to express it that, that much. And so I think about the gut that way. And it's like, yeah, your immune system is present in your gut, but it, that doesn't mean we can just kind of keep assaulting it. And it's just going to respond the same every time it's going to get burnt out and you have expression of disease in different ways. And so I think the gut should be a part of every chronic disease healing protocol. Like if you go to the emergency room with some acute, you know, your gallbladder is about to burst. I mean, this is not the time for probiotics. If you have an acute situation where you got, well, I don't want to say you got stabbed, it's kind of morbid, but if you have something like got cut off, your hand got cut off or something and you need to go to the hospital, this is the time for surgery, not probiotics. But most Americans aren't suffering from acute disease. We have chronic disease. And I think the gut is just a neglected part in conventional mm-hmm. medicine. Yeah, yeah. I would also love to talk about antibiotic use and and gut health because that, yeah, it seems like those two things are almost at odds, not to say this is not like an anti-medicine, anti-antibiotic. Like if you have an infection, yeah, totally. like take, take your antibiotics. But I think it is right. also important to understand, you know, what can mm-hmm. happen if we do take antibiotics, the impact that that can have on our gut health. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And so there are different classes of antibiotics and different types of antibiotics. So the broad spectrum antibiotics, they are broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. So they pretty much target everything. And the, you have other antibiotics that are not broad spectrum. They target specific types of bacteria. And so there are like classes or grades of antibiotics that are more or less safe. The issue is it just depends on what kind of infection you're targeting because some of them won't cover it. But when you think about antibiotics in the gut, I, I don't really have like a love hate relationship with antibiotics. I just think that 
if somebody has to take them, they need to definitely be repopulating their gut with like beneficial bacteria. But antibiotics can nuke your gut bacteria, right? And we have literature showing that once you reach a certain amount of antibiotics in your life in terms of using them at a certain rate, you actually increase your odds of certain diseases, certain mental disorders. And I think there was this paper demonstrating that once you've had about six antibiotics or more, you kind of have a higher risk for depression than somebody who's not taking those. It doesn't mean you're going to develop that, but it just kind of puts you in different risk categories. And I think it speaks to the importance of a microbiome because antibiotics work in one way. They kill bacteria. So we know what they're doing and we know the lasting effects. There's so many other associations with antibiotic use. And I think that, you know, I, I see a lot of SIBO cases and SIBO is small intestine bacteria overgrowth. And one of the easiest ways, well, I don't think it's easy to treat SIBO, but one of the conventional ways we look at SIBO or eradicate excessive bacteria in the small intestine, because most bacteria should be in your large intestine. But when you have it in your small intestine, you have all these symptoms. But one of the ways we eradicate it is with antibiotics. And one of the antibiotics we use is called Zyfaxin. And I actually love this one because it's a really safe antibiotic, right? It's not absorbed systemically. It's not nuking your gut bacteria. And patients are like, wait, I thought antibiotics are bad. So I think it's just relative, but I'm definitely not a fan of like the long-term or chronic uses of Z-Packs and um, the metros and other ones that are commonly easily just thrown at patients. Uh, I'm, I'm in my feelings because I've taken many Z-Packs in my, in my day and I've had, I've experienced some not great outcomes yeah. from it. But if someone has maybe had a history of antibiotic use or is just mm -hmm. coming off of antibiotics, what can they do to repopulate the good bacteria? So the simplest things are prebiotics and probiotics. So I usually describe these as like, if you had a garden and you wanted to like add more dirt, that would just be like adding probiotics. If you wanted to actually cultivate the dirt that you already had, you can just add fertilizer, which would be like prebiotics, right? And so you can do both of them. A lot of people that I see when I run these stool panels to look at their bacterial levels in the gut, a lot of their bacteria, the beneficial bacteria will be really, really low, but they're still present. So you can just feed them to help them grow. And so I do a lot of prebiotics with folks. So those are mostly like fruits, vegetables, your, you know, um, you can do prebiotic supplements, you can do green banana powder, you can do like certain ways you can cook your rice and potatoes to make them more resistant starches so that you're they essentially resist digestion. So they pass through to your gut and your gut microbiome like enjoy it's like fast food for them. So they love to eat those and produce more um, and proliferate themselves. So that I will I love to recommend like probiotics to just kind of change around the microbiome and put more anti inflammatory compounds there. So I mean, it's not the end of the world. Um, but I would say start with prebiotics. Yeah, yeah, those good starchy prebiotic foods mm -hmm. to feed, feed the bacteria. And I love that you, you started with that, started with kind of the food approach yeah. is really empowering. Yeah, because everybody has to eat. You might as well just eat smarter, right? You know? right. Eat the things that are going to help your body. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you also mentioned was that people who maybe have a, a history of antibiotic use could potentially, you know, be in a disposition for experiencing depression. I would love to talk about the link between gut health and, and mental health and what causes that. Right now, there's a lot of conversation around like neurotransmitters being produced in the gut, right? So it's like, oh, your serotonin is made in the gut. Our gut makes GABA, which is like a neuroinhibitory neurotransmitter. So it basically calms things down. Our gut produces some dopamine, yada, yada. So people will say like, oh, that means that there's this huge gut brain connection. And there is, but we don't actually know yet, according to the science, if those neurotransmitters are being produced in the gut and directly leaving the gut and going straight to the brain, or if they're working through the vagus nerve, which is a huge nerve innervating the gut and kind of stimulating changes there. But there is a huge gut brain connection. And when you look at the science around folks with anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, lots of like mental and mood disorders, a lot of them do have gut dysbiosis. And there are small studies and large studies with use of probiotics or just kind of prebiotic supplementation and how they have been able to subjectively improve some of their like uh, mental or mood score outcome index score points. And so I think there's a huge brain gut connection. I do think it's a little bit more, the conversation should be more granular because I think it can be a little reckless also, right? If somebody has like serious mental mood disorder and they don't want to take medications and they've read all this literature and they're like, I can just heal my gut and life goes on. And I just think that that's a little misleading, but 
I do think that in anybody, like I said, with any chronic disease, there has to be some emphasis on the gut. When you think about people with schizophrenia, there's some interesting literature on schizophrenia and people eating gluten. And in some small studies, they found that removing gluten from the diet of schizophrenics in many cases can reverse a lot of their symptoms. Wow. And there's published studies demonstrating this. And gluten is something we're eating, right? It's not something we're breathing in. Well, you can breathe. I guess you can breathe in if you're around in like a a big bakery. You can kind of actually be irritated with gluten just by kind of being in the environment. But most gluten we have in our body is coming from eating breads or pastas or, you know, I don't know, pies, whatever has like flour in it, you're going to have gluten in it or wheat flour, you're going to have gluten in it. And so when you look at these studies, they eliminate gluten out of these folks diet and their mental health significantly improves. And so there is some correlation, right, with what we eat, how it impacts our gut and our brain. And we know gluten is a huge trigger for leaky gut, which makes your gut more permeable, right? So everybody's gut is leaky. It should be leaky because we need to absorb our food and our nutrition. But the issue, if it's too leaky, then you have kind of like everybody and their mama just trying to get out into the system and see what's happening and explore. You know, it's like when it's warm outside, like I want to be outside too. And so (laughs) I get it. I get the vibe, but it's just gluten is a huge trigger for making the cells more permeable. So then you continually stimulate those immune cells and kind of release other types of compounds in the bloodstream. So I definitely think that the gut is linked. Well, I definitely know that the gut is linked with mental health. I think the conversation should just be a little bit more um, granular. That makes sense. Yeah. Having that nuance there where it's mm-hmm. sounds like it's a, a piece of the puzzle, but that correlation is not causation. Right, right, right. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So we can't be too reckless, but even just the, the findings that you mentioned are so, so interesting. Very interesting. They're very interesting. So I was kind of shocked when I saw that, but I just, I wish we had like all the money in the world to kind of do more research in all these areas. It's just, you know, we're really limited. Yeah, that makes sense. My goodness. I feel like we've covered so much ground already just in the importance of gut health and how interconnected <laughs> our bodies are. I would love to to just talk more about kind of practices and, and habits mm-hmm. that we can implement to support our gut health. I'm sure if someone has maybe an ailment or a certain condition, that's going yeah. to be more specific. But for the everyday person, you know, what are some things that we can do to help bring our, our guts into balance? I typically like to start really basic and that is going to the bathroom. And so I like to have people focus on just initially healthy bowel movements. And that's with anybody that has more functional, well, I won't say functional, but more like kind of lower level GI complaints like gas, bloating, constipation, indigestion. Now that's not for people who have like Crohn's or colitis, right? That's a different kind of caliber of GI disease. But when you have this kind of basic GI complaints, the first key is going to the bathroom. Because a lot of folks are like, I'm so bloated. And bloated can be so many things. But the number one GI cause for gas and bloating is actually constipation. Because when you have a ton of bacteria sitting around in your colon, then you got poop just hanging out there. The bacteria eat the poop like dessert and they produce all this gas and you're bloated. So the, the biggest thing is just go to the bathroom every day. So I like to encourage folks to... First thing in the morning, have something on the tummy, usually water, because I don't really, I don't know what people's eating habits are, if they're fasting, yada, yada. So I'll just do basic guidelines. And I'll say, the first thing you want to do is have a full glass of water. You can put some tea in there, some lemon, whatever you want to put in there. The purpose is not necessarily the water to push things out, but just the water to stretch the stomach. And that's the gastrocolic reflex. So it basically sends a signal to the brain to say, hey, there's something in the tummy. Let's empty out the colon to get ready for whatever they're putting in. And that actually stimulates motility in the colon to kind of get poop out. So that's kind of a habit to add in. And you may not notice anything immediately, but you have to be consistent. So that's something really simple. Going to the bathroom every single day. I like to encourage folks to eat a well-balanced diet. And right now there's this huge like meat heavy kind of focus. Like I don't eat vegetables. They're anti-human. You know, these vegetables are all bad kind of vibe, which I don't know how I feel about that. But What I'll say is, you know, the number one source of fiber is fruits and vegetables. You don't find fiber in meat products. It sounds a little silly to me just kind of first hearing it because I'm like, how are you moving your bowels? And I would love to know how these folks, what their bowel habits are like. So I think that adding in just quality fruits and vegetables, if you hate fruits and vegetables, that's okay. You can just do a fiber powder, which I often will add because, you know, lifestyle modifications or behavior modifications are the the hardest modifications to make. And I'm not going to tell somebody, well, I don't want to see you because you don't want to eat fruits and vegetables. It's like, okay, fine, do what you want, but we got to get your bowels moving. Let's add in 
some fiber and see how that changes the picture. But natural fiber is your fruits, your vegetables. So I do hydration also on top of the morning water, just kind of consistently drinking fluids because when your body's dehydrated and your skin's dehydrated, you will pull it from your colon, right? That's kind of a, a huge source for like water exchange in the body. So your body will pull it from your colon, which means that if you have stools hanging out there, the stools are now going to be drier and harder because the water is not there. That's another reason to take fiber because fiber keeps the water also in the bowel. So it's not just about bulking the stools and moving them, but fiber also keeps water attached to the bowel and keeps it in a nice shape so it comes out in a smooth form and it's not hard to pass. But staying hydrated and drinking water throughout the day is a big tool um, also for continuing to move the bowels. So those are the basic steps. It's like making sure your bowels are moving. I also will have people do like just mini abdominal massages, like working their way around their belly to kind of stimulate the colonic muscles to say, hey, get some movement in. Um, but that's like the basic place I start. And then I just kind of layer on after that, depending on what what they have going on. I love, love, love how accessible those practices are of like hydrating, yeah. getting some fiber in whichever way we can get it. Love the no judgment mm-hmm. approach of like, if we need to start with powder yeah. or psyllium or something and work our way up to vegetables, exactly. we can do that. Exactly. And movement. Yep. Like those things are just the, the foundation of everything. Exactly. It's so simple. And you'd be amazed at the patients I see and I think we inherently know, right? That what a good diet is. I mean, not all the aspects, but I just, it's so interesting that the power of the mind and how we know what's good for us, but we still, we are averse to it, right? For whatever reason. And I think it's the power of suggestion. I was listening to Dr. McGregor once, or maybe I was reading his book. I don't know, but he was talking about how he thinks that the number one the number one cause of uh, obesity or being overweight is not really like diet or lifestyle factors. It's advertisements, right? The power of suggestion on our mind is incredible, right? And we see things around us that look appetizing. And like I was talking to a friend and they're all about the new chips that are out, the new flavor chips, the new wrap chips, all the chips, they have to taste all the chips. And it's like, (laughs) Where do you find these things at, right? There's, they see so many ads all the time at the store and it's like, I got to have it. And I think a lot of times we're led astray by our own mind. And so I don't know where I was going with that. I'm just rambling at this point. What did you ask me? <laughs> we were just talking about just, <laughs> just the behavior change related to, yeah. to our, our gut health and those habits. But I think even what you're saying can be so prevalent slightly different example, but just in terms of the power of persuasion, when I think about social Uh media, and I think about influence, Uh and I think about all of the things that were influenced to buy, I mean, I would be so curious to see in terms of spending habits for the average person compared to 10 years Mm -hmm. ago when we were influenced far less yeah how much those categories Mm -hmm. have changed purely because we can just see it and we can see someone talk about it it's really powerful yeah it's so powerful um so a lot of times when i see like chronic gi cases like i am big into like mind body medicine i've done like hypnotherapy training and whatnot so i love like adding in layering in mental affirmations or just kind of like I'll even do like custom hypnosis scripts for people and send them to them so they can listen to them every day because you have to believe that you can heal or improve before you actually get to that space because if you don't believe it it's just not going to happen and there's some way you're going to create resistance in your own life Mm -hmm. um, to prevent it from happening and you see that all the time when people you know have like I see folks who have like chronic I don't know autoimmune disease and then everything in their life is around that, right? They wear t-shirts that affirm the disease. They have bumper stickers on the car that say, this is who I am. I am lupus, right? And it's not true. And so I think that that's also like that mental aspect of us staying in sickness. And that's not obviously how people stay sick, but I just think that we have to always also outside of taking supplements or taking meds or doing what we should be doing recommended for our doctor, but work on our mentality around healing in disease states. Absolutely. Yeah, that that mindset component to healing sounds like it should be as much of the protocol as the diet and lifestyle modifications. Like it's another piece of the puzzle. Yep, I agree. 100%. 100%. What are some of the mindfulness practices that you like to practice yourself and that you recommend? 
Yeah. So <laughs> I'm always like, I'm really bad like to answer this because I'm always experimenting on myself. <laughs> uh, I just downloaded this one hour dispensa meditation. And so I read his book a couple, maybe last year and somebody that I know suggested I try this like alchemist meditation out. So I've been trying that. I do prayer as well. Something that I love to do. Um, something that is like a mindful practice for me is just waking up early and like sitting and let, like hearing the birds, seeing the sunrise. Like I just love that vibe and I'll just have like an Earl Grey tea with some kind of milk that I love. I just try to really focus on that moment and nothing else that I have during the day. And so I think it's really great to have some type of mindfulness practice where you just sit and do that one thing. Absolutely. That presence is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which dispensive book? Was it uh, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself or Becoming Supernatural? or Both of those. So Becoming Supernatural was the most recent one that I completed. And his website has all these like meditations you can like download. So I have a ton of different types of meditations, but that's one I've just been working on lately, but it's an hour and it can be hard to sit through one hour meditation, right? Because for me, when I first started meditating, it's like five minutes and like, okay, I'm over this. I need to go do something, right? It's just like my nerves. (laughs) And it's like, now it's therapeutic. It's like, whew, I can sit for 15, 20, 30, 40 minute meditation and I'm good. So it's interesting when you are able to evaluate yourself in that perspective because you're like, dang, I can't even sit for sit still for 15 minutes. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. what is going on with my life? My nerves are so like, I'm used to being so on the run or maybe it's like ADHD. I don't know, but it's like, we should be able to sit with ourselves and be okay. And a lot of people cannot. And I think that's an insight. I think that all these symptoms or all these things we experience are just insight in our body trying to educate us so that we can kind of keep learning and moving on to the next phase. So I just think you got to reframe it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to that point, is there also a stress component when it comes to gut health? And if someone is looking to heal their gut, is there a stress management component to that as well? Totally. Because we know that when we're stressed, we release certain hormones, like we have higher circulating amounts of cortisol. You know, that cortisol actually can induce leaky gut and intestinal permeability. And so if you're doing all these protocols, but you work like a really high stress job or you have poor stress management skills, you kind of like set yourself back or you're wasting money on supplements because they're not really going to do much. And so, yes, there definitely should be some kind of stress management aspect to all types of chronic disease, but specifically with regard to gut disease. You even see folks who have like ulcerative colitis, which is an autoimmune disease of the gut. They'll say like, like it's a lot of young women have it, like in their 20s and 30s is when you see it kind of peak. Um, but a lot of these women are like in school or in college and they're like, when I have a stressful exam coming up, I go into a flare, right? And granted, they're not eating any differently. They're not in a different environment. They haven't added a new medication. Like there's no actual tangible trigger for a flare for some people. They literally know. I know when I'm stressed, I start flaring and they have actual physical organic disease processes that happen, right? Their stools become more frequent. So I had a girl that just came to my head who, when I saw a few years ago, had ulcerative colitis. And I think they're working a really stressful job and they had this big project coming up and their bowels are fine. So when I say fine, like they go to the bathroom once a day, every other day, no blood, no mucus, no abdominal pain, nothing. They have this stressful project this big project that's inducing a lot of stress. Next thing you know, they're in a flare. Flare for ulcerative colitis is 10 to 20 stools a day. Bloody stools. Every stool is urgent. Gotta go, gotta go now. When they go to the bathroom, it feels like it's poo, but it's just blood and mucus that comes out. And you can actually do a colonoscopy on them and you see their intestines are like on fire. So literally stress can induce inflammatory states. And so it's so important to to look at the mind. And I wish there was some metric or some way we could actually like measure our mind like all these like kind of step watches we wear that shows like how many steps we're taking or you know how many calories we eat I wish there was some app that was tuned in to say you're really stressed out right now (laughs) go breathe or something to help us but I think we have to do that on our own until that's actually invented yeah yeah learning how to listen to our bodies and understanding because I think our bodies will give us kind of warning signs before we get to that point and learning yep. what those signs are for your body mm-hmm. and how to mitigate them before it escalates to that level. Yep. 100%. Yep. So I also really love your social media content. I love your Instagram. I nerd out Thank over you. it all the time. I've been following Aww. you for a while. Thanks. 
And I just love how informative and accessible your content is. And lately, I noticed that you've been sharing content related to liver health, uh, Mm -hmm, liver health, mm -hmm. alcohol consumption, how that also impacts uh, our gut health. So can we talk a little bit more about the correlation between liver function and gut health? Totally. So the liver and the gut are like intimately connected. And that's because, you know, some studies say like 75%, but just to be modest, I'll say 65% of the blood that flows into the liver is coming directly from the gut. And there's all these new studies coming out. I was just reading one that was published, I don't know if it's like a few months ago, about the gut-liver axis and how when you have gut disease, it actually impresses stress on the liver and your liver actually has its own built-in mechanism for stress because it's kind of it's honestly so beautiful because like the liver knows that it's gonna have to deal with a lot of crap Mm -hmm. and so it has all of these extra immune cells present ready like already posted ready to go and so when we have dysbiosis in our gut and it flows to the liver the liver will increase its Kupfer cells, which are a certain type of liver in, uh, immune cell, a macrophage in the liver that essentially is like a security guard for the liver. So the liver already knows what's up. But the issue is when we add in other factors that can stress out our liver, even certain herbs, certain medications, right, that stress the liver, it just creates more inflammatory processes, kind of possible damage to the liver that I think short term, you don't notice anything because it's a really resilient organ and the liver can actually regenerate itself. It's one of the only organs that can do that. But long term, when you kind of have these chronic insults, you see folks pop up with alterations in their liver enzymes that are just kind of like a, a little mini snapshot to possibly what's to come. Or they'll have like scarring of the liver, which is more severe than just inflammation of the liver. Um, and so the liver is also connected to the gut because the liver makes bile and bile is a fluid that we release when we eat fats and it helps to absorb our fat soluble vitamins like your A, your D, your E, your K. Um, and it also helps to regulate the bacteria in the gut. And so they are intimately connected. And um, I love talking about liver health because you can have liver disease and not have any symptoms at all. Mm, wow. Yeah. So how would you know that you have liver disease? I mean, it depends. If you have regular blood work done, a lot of times it's captured there. Some Mm -hmm. of your enzymes will be off and the doctor will say, let's repeat these in a few weeks or six Mm -hmm. or six weeks. In six weeks, if they're repeated and they are still abnormal, they'll say, oh, let's send you for an ultrasound. And they may say, oh, we see you have, I don't know, fatty liver. You have some scarring in your liver, you know. That's how they find it. A lot of times you can have normal liver enzymes and have liver disease. So it's really hard. There was a study that came out discussing fatty liver disease, which we are predicting now is going to be the number one reason for liver transplants in about a decade, which is going to displace hepatitis C and alcoholism as reasons for liver transplants. And fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver is really due to just diet and lifestyle. We know that when you have fatty liver disease, you can have fat in the liver causing inflammation because they do a biopsy and see, yeah, the liver cells are inflamed and the liver enzymes are completely normal. So it's just, it's, it's really puzzling. Um, and I don't know if there's like some new tool out now to actually assess it, but you have different types of scoring systems where you can plug in all these numbers and not just look at your liver enzymes and it'll give you a picture, but doctors don't use it. I mean, I wasn't trained to use that when I was training. And so it's, it's a tool that I think is underutilized. And like I said, your liver, you don't really feel pain in the liver. If you feel pain in your upper right side, it's typically gallbladder. Unless your liver is like stretched so big that it's it's stretching the capsule it's in, your liver is kind of contained in this capsule space. If it stretches the capsule, then you feel pain. But usually that's only when somebody has like hepatitis, like a really acute inflammation of the liver and like from virus or for some like something else that's happening. But you rarely have liver pain. Like I can probably count on one hand and I've seen like thousands and thousands of patients, how many people I've seen with right-sided pain and we end up doing scans and blood work and their liver enzymes are like in the thousands and they should be in the double digits. Wow. And after a while they they end up trending down if it's like viral or if it's something of kind of acute poisoning incident, but it's, you don't really don't have liver symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's like, you have to stay on top of your blood work metabolic health, if somebody has weight issues, if they have lipid issues, if they have blood sugar issues, you may have liver issues as well. So kind of stay on top of those liver numbers. Yeah, yeah, super important. Just the complexity, it sounds like even of diagnosing something like that is mind blowing. 
It's very, it's very, I had a woman that was in her thirties with cirrhosis of the liver. And once you have cirrhosis, you pretty much have 10 years to live, right? Cause your liver is like shriveled up like a raisin and it can't do performance jobs, which then it stresses the rest of the system out and you have all these other consequences. So it's really troubling to see that, um, in a young person. Yeah, absolutely. And are there yeah. some other, are there practices and things that we can do to support liver health or things to incorporate in our diet yeah. that support the liver? Totally. So when it comes to the liver, the liver loves vitamin C, vitamin E, zinc. It loves, it, it likes some vitamin A, but vitamin A can actually, too much vitamin A can, can be damaging to the liver. So I typically stick with like your vitamin C, your zinc, your vitamin E. So vitamin C foods are all kind of your fruits and vegetables, right? Your vitamin E foods are like your nuts and seeds. And then your zinc, it's kind of like your fishes or some of your protein sources. So that's what I like to, to recommend folks start with, like just diet wise, try to incorporate a diverse plant diet and like quality meat diet. If you're eating meats, pasture raised meats, kind of wild caught fishes. Um, you can also take supplements, but you just got to be careful sometimes because some vitamins get stored and some don't. But outside of that, you know, I think botanicals are really great. I love burdock tea as a super gentle um, liver tea. And I like milk thistle. Milk thistle is not good in a tea form. You don't actually get the benefits from the compounds you're looking for. So milk thistle has to be either a tincture, like a alcohol extract form, or it has to be some kind of encapsulated form where it's been extracted in some in some way. Um, but yeah, there are lots of things you can do to support your liver and protect it. And the good thing is, even if you have liver damage, if the rest of your liver is not damaged, so if you do get an ultrasound and it's like, oh, we noticed some scarring, that doesn't mean your entire liver is damaged. I've seen folks have some scarring of the liver and they just have a normal lifespan as somebody who doesn't have scarring of the liver. So your liver is really resilient. It'll just kind of like offset the functionality to the rest of the liver that is healthy. So it's not the end of the world. More evidence that our bodies are amazing. <laughs> amazing. Like it's our bodies are working with us yes. all the time. Yes, yes. But I love that to recap. So liver health, vitamin C, zinc, vitamin E, and vitamin zinc. E, yes, burdock, if we want to incorporate it, milk thistle in a tincture yeah. capsule form. Perfect. So Dr. Asia, this has probably been like one of the most jam packed episodes <laughs> I've ever had, but I loved every minute of it. And I have so yeah. many more things that I want to ask you, but I also want to be <laughs> cognizant of your time because I just love yeah. learning about this and, and love the way you explain things. Yeah. So before we go, can you share with us how you're currently finding your balance and what's keeping you in balance these days? Oh, I like that question. What keeps me in balance is creative expression. So I love the process or our ability as human beings to create, you know, like even just writing or even, you know, drawing or just some kind of creative process. Like that is what I thrive on, even like switching out my plants and like putting them in new dirt. Right. So that's a creative process for me. So I love any type of creative expressive process. And um, I like eating food and shopping. So that's kind of pretty much how I balance my stressful life, which I don't really think it's stressful. I think it's just life, right? So absolutely. No. Love, love all of those practices. <laughs> it's real basic. Like I'm super basic. I wish I could say like, oh, I, you know, meditate for two hours a day and I drink a gallon of burdock tea. It's like, actually, I don't do that. Um, you know, There's I plan a new basic. Plan. I think basic <laughs> means that it's effective. It means that there we all go. like it because it, it serves its purpose. <laughs> That's right. I'm here for that. Amazing. So how can our audience keep in touch with you and keep learning from you? Yeah, um, I'm just on Instagram. I can't like really manage any other social media site at this point. But I'm just on IG. It's just Dr. Asia Muhammad, A-S-I-A-M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. If you go to my Instagram, there's a link in my profile. Um, that links to my email subscription list. So you can subscribe there. I'll be honest, I've not released a single email this year, but um, hopefully that happens. I have a lot of other projects that I'm working on. So I plan to release my first email <laughs> in June. So get on the list and you'll get an email in a couple months. But yeah, that's it. That's perfect. Well, we'll have your Instagram, your email <laughs> list linked in the show notes. I also know that you have your tea blend. You also have your ebook. Oh, yeah, more amazing that's true. resources. So we yeah. will leave those in the show notes as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This was great.
Like I said in the intro, you're probably going to want to listen to this episode a few times to really soak in everything Dr. Asia shared. Her content is incredible and so informative. So if you aren't already following her on Instagram, please make sure you do so. We also have her information, her resources linked in the show notes. So huge thanks to Dr. Asia for joining me today. Head to the show notes for more information about Dr. Asia's offerings, as well as discount codes and goodies from our brand partners. Huge thanks to our sponsors for supporting the show. And thank you for tuning in today. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss next week's installment of our Modalities of Healing series.